We are Americans. I love that. That was uh, Ronald, President Ronald Reagan with Memorial Day speech. I, I don't know who put this uh, clip together. It's been circulating around the Internet for several years now. I believe it was a conservative think tank. It may have been Heritage originally. I don't know. There's multiple versions of it available online now. You can go in and you can, uh, you can find it on YouTube. You can find audio of it elsewhere as well. But what a great storyteller. Ronald Reagan had a gift of weaving together the sobriety of a situation with the triumph of the American spirit. I mean, he tells a story of, of the young man who was killed in World War I who said, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me and me alone. And then he says, you know, it's the, the will and the moral courage of free men and women is the greatest weapon in the world. We are Americans. And that's what we do on Memorial Day. We remember those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. And we're going to talk more about this in a minute and how it came about. But we, we remember those who have given their all so that we might be free. And we celebrate the triumph of America because of their sacrifice. And I, I know it's not Memorial Day today. It was yesterday, but we weren't in the office. I wasn't in the studio yesterday, and I, I couldn't let this holiday go by without talking about it just for a few minutes here as we open the show. Because, you know, as you as you approach Memorial Day, as you approach Veterans Day every year, there are always those who will uh, remind us that Memorial Day and Veterans Day are two very different things. And I talked about this last week, but Memorial Day is to remember those who have given their lives, to remember uh, their families. And Veterans Day is to remember those who have served, all who have served. And honestly, technically, if we want to get uh, completely accurate about it, Veterans Day is not even to remember those who are currently serving. Veterans Day is, okay, so it works like this. Uh, Memorial Day is those who have given their lives. Veterans Day is those uh, who have served in the past. And then actually Armed Forces Day is the day that we're supposed to celebrate those that are currently serving. And because of that, Memorial Day uh, is or, or, or should be, or, or there are those that say it should be, the most somber of, of these occasions. Because it is the day that we remember those who have given their all for our country. But then it, it, there's also the, the picnicking and the celebrating and the boating. And families get together and friends get together. And, and there are those that don't appreciate the, the celebration or, or the triumph. Celebration of the triumph of our brave men and women have given there all so that we can get together and have picnics. I was walking my dog Liberty in the park yesterday and I passed a pavilion where there was a church that had gathered for a Memorial Day service and they were uh, they had finished a time of, of singing and then they had a time of remembrance and then there was a sermon that was happening and I, I was walking by and I was thinking how great is it 
that we live in a place where this church, and I don't know anything about them, I don't know, it, it sounded from what best I could tell that they were preaching the gospel and that they were a Bible-believing church, but I didn't see any signs and I didn't stick around too long, so I don't know, because Liberty wanted to go chase the ducks. But how great is it that we live in a country where a church can rent out a pavilion in a public park, set up speakers, and preach the gospel. That Christians can get together without fear, in the open, in public, and enjoy time together. That's what freedom is. And that's what the men and women who gave their lives for this country have have given to us, is freedom. And so Memorial Day, it's a, it's a time where, where we need to do both. We need to remember those who have given their lives for us. And we also need to celebrate the freedom that we have because of them. And some people will, will, will go completely to one side or the other on Memorial Day. It's, it can only be a remembrance. There can be no celebration. But I don't think that that is how those who have given their lives for us would want it to be. I don't think that they, I, I think that they would want us to celebrate together the awesome country that we live in because of their sacrifice. But then there are those who will party and picnic and not even think about the sacrifices that were made so that we can have that party and that picnic. And that's not right either. But somewhere in the middle... I think is where we need to end up. And as I was thinking about this over the weekend, I thought, you know, how many of us actually know how Memorial Day began? Do you? Do you know that it's not even necessarily... Or at least, well, it, it definitely wasn't in its beginnings a day to remember all those who have died in previous conflicts in the United States. It's not the case. In the years following the Civil War, our country began to observe what was known as Decoration Day. And Decoration Day was observed by the visiting of cemeteries, or memorials, holding family gatherings, uh, or participating in parades. It was in the late 1860s that Americans in various towns and cities began holding springtime tributes to the countless fallen soldiers of the Civil War, decorating their graves with flowers, gathering as families, remembering the fallen. Six hundred twenty thousand American lives were lost during the Civil War. Can you comprehend that number? Six hundred twenty thousand killed in just four years, and historians now tell us that number was probably closer to seven hundred fifty thousand. The per- you want some perspective? By percentage of the population, the U.S. population was thirty-one million people during the Civil War. The equivalent today 
with the number of people living in our country today, those who died in the Civil War, if, if such a conflict were to happen today, it would be equivalent to 6.5 million Americans dying on American soil. Imagine that. Imagine if there were 6.5 million people who died in the United States in the next four years. That's a huge number. And that's how Decoration Day, which eventually became Memorial Day, came about. See, the Civil War had a tremendous impact on the fabric of the United States. Rare was there a family that wasn't touched by this tragic conflict. But also, our country was never the same as a result of those brave individuals fighting for what they believed in. And our nation created Memorial Day, and at the time Observation Day, or Decoration Day rather, to remember the fallen of the Civil War and reflect on that conflict. It wasn't a day to remember those who died in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, or every American conflict of the past. No, it was a day to remember the fallen of the Civil War and reflect on that conflict. Because that conflict was unlike any other. That was a conflict within our country. It wasn't foes that we were fighting from without. It was each other. And it was more bloody and brutal more soldiers, more American soldiers died in the Civil War than I believe all of the rest of our conflicts since combined. And at the end of the Civil War, our country was greatly divided. The division following the Civil War is unparalleled in our nation's history. And I, I don't have time to get into all of that today in Reconstruction, but through Reconstruction and in the decades following Reconstruction, eventually the, the tension began to cool. And as the tensions cooled, as we reached the end of the 19th century, in the late 1800s, it was then that uh, Decoration Day shifted from purely a day of remembrance of those who gave their lives in the Civil War to a day of not just remembrance, but also of celebration of our united country as a result. Now today, we've moved from simply remembering the sacrifices of those who fought in the Civil War, and, and even those who speak of Memorial Day in somber terms tend to think only of those recently deceased in American conflicts, but that's not what it's about. I, what, what Memorial Day began was about the Civil War, and I think that we should remember all those who have given their lives for our country, but it's particularly pertinent that we remember those who gave their lives in the Civil War because it was a conflict unlike any other. But anyway, as we shifted to a more celebratory day over the past century, again, it's important that in our celebration that we remember those who fought and have died so that we might have the opportunity to celebrate and to live in freedom in the greatest country on earth. 
and with the history of Memorial Day in mind, it seems fitting to, to finish this segment by reading Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Gettysburg, if you're not familiar with the conflict, you should Google it. You could even watch the movie. It's fairly historically accurate. If you're ever in Pennsylvania, you should visit the Gettysburg Battlefields. It's it's incredible, the, the history, and you can you can see, you can literally see where hundreds upon hundreds of men died. You can look at the field where Pickett's Charge happened. You can crawl among the rocks where Civil War soldiers hid and fought and died. History comes to life in Gettysburg like nowhere I've ever experienced before except maybe Boston. But I want to finish with reading Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and most certainly to focus on his conclusion this Memorial Day. He said this at Gettysburg, President Lincoln. He said, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And since the Civil War, those who have fallen in conflict, that's what they have done. These are the men and women that we remember and that we celebrate on Memorial Day. Those who began with the Civil War, we could even go prior to that, although there was no uh, decoration day or Memorial Day prior to the Civil War. But those who gave their lives, those who stood up and said, no, we will be one nation. We will stand for freedom. We will stand as one people under God with liberty and justice for all. And since that point, throughout history, we've seen conflict after conflict after conflict, which we can debate the politics of and which we can banter back and forth whether or not it's something that America should have been involved with. And you could take that argument and make it about any any intervention or police action or war, 
that the United States has ever been involved in, if you want to. I mean, history lets us do it. We could even do it with World War I. But every American who has given their life since the Civil War has done so in, in pursuit of what President Lincoln said on that Gettysburg Field in November of 1863. Those who have given their lives have done so to ensure that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. All right, we are back. So I was doing some some shopping yesterday before my own little Memorial Day barbecue in my own backyard, which actually I don't um I don't really celebrate per se holidays that fall on Mondays unless it's Christmas because Monday is just my regular day off. Um, so it's, I mean, I, I, I celebrated in the sense that I remembered what the day was about, but I didn't have like a picnic or anything like that, but I did do a little bit of shopping and I was amazed the difference in the morning hustle bustle. Not okay. Once it got to be like nine o'clock, it was, it was funny. You could tell everybody's sleeping in cause they've got a day off, but once it hit nine o'clock, it was like this explosion of people shopping last minute for their, their hot dogs and their hamburgers and their potato chips and whatever else they were getting. And then, um, I don't know what happened between roughly nine thirty and until I went out later, but when I went back, <laughs> when I went out last night to get a couple things, I have never seen a Walmart in Las Vegas so empty. I walked in, I was like, is this, did the rapture happen and a whole lot of Las Vegans get taken? Like, what? What? It was the calmest Walmart experience in Las Vegas I have ever had. And I thought, I need to shop at Walmart on holidays more often. It was amazing. It was like going to Walmart in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Not that I don't love people, but you know, sometimes you, you go to to different stores. I'm not saying it's only people that go to Walmart, but you know, there are entire Facebook pages and videos dedicated to people that go to Walmart. And I'm one of those people. I, I admit it. I go to Walmart. I like Walmart. Um, I like some Walmarts a lot better than other Walmarts. Just, just throwing it out there. But you know how it's just like random people sometimes at Walmart and you hear things that you think, what, what, uh, huh? Like, I was walking out of Walmart this one time, and uh, I didn't see this one guy. He was coming around the corner, so I like I couldn't see him because he was coming around the corner, and almost ran into him, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. And he, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, whatever, it's your life. And I thought, what, why, why? I don't, I just, I, huh? All right, moving on, moving on. We'll get to some news here today, later this week. We have a fun interview coming up on Thursday, so be sure to tune in for that. Also, fun things, kiddos. If you're in Las Vegas, Camp Liberty begins this Sunday. This Sunday begins Camp Liberty. All the fun will be happening here at Liberty Baptist Church in Camp Liberty. 
if you are an elementary age child, you probably want to remind your parents and have them bring you to church because it's going to be epic summer here at Liberty Baptist Church at 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard. Okay, to the news. I have a headline for you. It is not fake news. It is real news from me, the Frittle. Are you ready? You may quote me. You may quote me on this one. Some of the other ones probably would be better if you did not quote me. But on this one, you may. Ready? Here it is. Breaking. No, we are not all going to die if the GOP's new health care bill goes through. Nor are we all going to die because of Donald Trump's budget. Why would, I, why would I even think that we possibly would? Well, New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, uh, is letting everyone know that he believes, he, well, that, not that he believes, he's just saying it as fact, that children will die because of Trump's budget. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said that some children will die if President Trump's budget proposal passes. Speaking at a press conference in the Bronx, de Blasio said children will be less healthy because food stamp cuts will affect half a million of them in the city. 500,000 kids in his hometown will have less food to eat because of this proposal, he said. It is not an overstatement to say that some children will die because of this, de Blasio said. He said that Trump's cuts to education and public funding, public housing funding is proof that it is a plan written by billionaires and millionaires for billionaires and millionaires. He also blasted Trump for reportedly planning to cut counter-terror grants to the NYPD only a day after the deadly Manchester, England terror attack, calling it a tragic irony. In an appearance on The Story, however, House Speaker Paul Ryan defended the budget proposal, saying the process is only just beginning. He said the overall goal is a balanced, bu- balanced budget in 10 years, something that was not pursued by the Obama administration in its entirety. Okay, so obviously there are things in this budget proposal that are going to change. It's not been finalized. It's going to go through uh, a lot. There will be things in it that... Uh, people will like there will be things in it that people won't like and depending on which side of the political spectrum you fall on will probably determine which things you do or do not like but let me just say this children will not die because of the budget proposal (sighs) again one because it's not finalized the proposal itself does nothing the proposal does not kill children the proposal is words written on paper It will be revised, it will be changed, and then eventually we will possibly have a bill that we may or may not be able to pass through Congress. But balancing the budget is an admirable goal. And to balance the budget, we will have to cut things from the budget. There will have to be reductions in spending. That's how balancing a budget works when you are trillions of dollars in debt. Also, I... I don't even know if I want to go here because it's such a touchy subject. But when it comes to food stamps, I I mean, okay. If we issued the food stamps to the children themselves or if we provided food for children and children only and that was 
the program that was being cut, I would be more, uh, more sympathetic to the mayor's cause here. And I'm not saying that there aren't great parents out there who are on food stamps and who need food stamps to, to take care of their children. There are a lot of them, right? And we should be helping these people. But if we presume and assume that every parent who's receiving food stamps is wisely utilizing those food stamps and providing healthy, nutritious meals to their children multiple times a day, then we have closed our eyes to reality. Because I have worked in inner-city Philadelphia. I have worked in the projects in Philadelphia doing ministry-related things. I have worked with underprivileged youth from Camden, Baltimore, Philly, Las Vegas. And what is sad that I can tell you is that many parents who receive food stamps and who should be utilizing those food stamps to feed their children well often are not doing so. There are a lot of kids out there in this country who are hungry and dare I say it, they're not hungry because the government isn't providing enough programs so that they can be properly fed. They're hungry because those who are responsible for them are not responsible adults. And if you follow me, that's going to make sense. If you don't, then I, I don't know another way to explain it. But the reason we have hungry kids in America today, for the most part, Granted, there's, there's going to be exceptions to everything. But if you want to generalize, as the mayor is doing, if you want a generalization, then perhaps we're looking at the wrong thing. Perhaps, perhaps. It's not that the government isn't providing enough by way of a, a, a social safety net. Perhaps, rather, it is because those who are supposed to be utilizing that safety net for the benefit of their children are failing to do so in some, if not many, instances. And I, I don't know how to break it to the mayor, but I'm rather positive that there is not going to be a mass outbreak or even a small outbreak of children dying should the president's budget pass. I mean, there wasn't a, a huge outbreak of, of children dying when o President Obama's budget's passed or when President Bush's budget's passed. I mean, we have no historical basis to think that this is something that would actually happen. I mean, this is just fear-mongering, and it's silly. It's like when Democrats made that campaign ad uh, with Paul Ryan, or the Paul Ryan lookalike, rather. It wasn't Paul Ryan. Uh, with a lookalike pushing a grandmother off of a cliff in a wheelchair. And it's just plain craziness. Oh, and by the way, as long as we're as long as we're talking about healthcare, you've probably seen if you have any friends who are not of the GOP persuasion that the Republican healthcare bill, if it passes, would cost twenty three million people to lose insurance. I saw an ad last night. Uh, I was watching. I don't remember what I was watching watching something last night I don't know 
I don't know. I don't even remember. It was so long ago, you know? Um, but there was an ad during whatever I was watching on TV. It was going to be, I feel like, I was going to watch Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. And then I didn't watch it, but I can't remember what I ended up watching instead. Anyhow, there was an ad during this, there was an ad last night that I saw where it was, uh, I think it was an ad from AARP even. And it was supposed to be this insurance broker or someone, I don't know, talking to this elderly couple about how if the Republican health care bill passes, they they will be paying thousands upon thousands of dollars for their health insurance. And he's acting as if this is their only avenue to health care and therefore they're you know, they're probably just not going to be able to afford any kind of coverage for themselves and therefore they're they're just, I mean, you're probably going to die, really. It's amazing how when things get political, people just end up dying all the time. Like, <laughs> that's just like the go-to. Oh, if their bill passes, everybody's going to die. Oh, if their bill passes, everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. Isn't it interesting how that's the thing we all go back to and yet that's the thing that most people don't want to talk about? Right? So everybody's, <laughs> there. It's if, if you let them be in power, you're going to die. Newsflash, you're going to die regardless at some point unless Jesus comes back first. But are you ready for when that happens? Like, we all know we're going to die. Republicans or Democrats, doesn't matter if you wear a red tie or a blue tie. It's coming. Doesn't matter if President Trump's budget passes or doesn't pass, or if the Republican health care bill is in or the Democrat health care bill is in. Death is the ultimate, uh, I mean, that that's the end of your human existence on this planet as we know it. Everybody wants to talk about how you're going to die, but nobody wants to talk about what then. Wouldn't that be interesting? If people would talk more about, well, what then? If we made commercials about, so, you know, they say you're going to die if this legislation goes through. Are you prepared for what happens after you die? Because eventually you're going to die regardless of if the legislation goes through or not. But anyhow, Guy Benson wrote a great piece in Town Hall about how not only is the Republican health care bill not going to cause a mass pandemic of death if it goes through, but it's not going to cause 23 million people to lose their insurance either. And this all came about because the Congressional Budget Office uh, scored the the American Health Care Act, and there was some good news and some bad news in the score. So I'm just going to read you part of, uh, of Guy Benson's piece on this. He said, On the bright side, it appears that its central fiscal outcome p- complies with reconciliation rules, which would allow the process to move forward without a complicated tweak and do-over vote in the House. The nonpartisan scorekeeper also found that individual market premiums would decline on average. All right? So the Congressional Budget Office score found that on average, that means that for most people... You're going to be paying less. It would also reduce the federal deficit by $119 billion. Now, most of the mainstream media has responded to this report by letting everyone know that the Congressional Budget Office is estimating that 23 people, or 23, yeah, 23 people, 23 million people will lose their health insurance in the next 10 years. But that is deeply misleading. Okay, basically, 
what happens is the large bulk of people who are being reported, the 23 million, as people that will be losing their coverage, do not actually have coverage currently. You cannot lose something that you don't have. That's not how it works. And Guy Benson does a great job explaining this. He said the, the CBO, or the Congressional Budget Office, assumes that these people would eventually gain coverage through the magical powers of Obamacare's individual mandate or through hypothetical future expansions of Medicaid by most of the states that haven't done so to date. Current Medicaid beneficiaries, including those who've gained coverage under Obamacare's expansion, are grandfathered in under the House GOP proposal. It also bakes into these new numbers a slew of empirically incorrect projections that have been disproven by actual data. When Obamacare first passed, the CBO anticipated that by 2016, 21 million Americans would enroll in the law's exchanges. However, when 2016 rolled around, the real number was just about 10 million. That's a massive miss. Remarkably, the CBO is relying on its revised 2016 baseline and its new calculations. But the 2016 baseline was also off by millions. By their own admission, despite these demonstrable misfires, the CBO is using verifiably disproven Obamacare-friendly estimates as the basis for comparison. That's the aforementioned magical thinking, and it's indefensible when there's real data available to plug into the calculations. So when you take away the people who don't have coverage under Obamacare, but who the CBO has decided would hypothetically have it in the years ahead, and then substitute actual enrollment numbers for the CBO's outdated and disproven projections, only a few million of the 23 million would actually lose their existing plan. And these people would receive tax credits to enable them to purchase new plans, many of which would end up costing less than they have currently. Right? Additionally, Benson points out that, quote, the millions who'd lose coverage would do so voluntarily, affirmatively choosing not to buy a product that the government is no longer forcing them to purchase. I know it's confusing, but uh, essentially, when you hear this number, that, that if this bill passes, 23 million people will lose health insurance, no, that is incorrect. The people that are going to, quote, unquote, lose their health insurance are those who don't have it right now. When you look at actual numbers instead of just projected numbers of people that don't currently exist in an insurance uh, marketplace or under an insurance plan, it reduces down to a few million. And then when you look at those few million, now granted, a couple million people is still a lot of people. So what happens with those people? Those people can voluntarily choose to no longer have the insurance which will go up in price, it's not going to go away, but they can change that plan. They can leave that plan, have tax credits to get onto a different plan, which will be cheaper than what they had under Obamacare. That's all in the CBO's report. But that's not how it's being reported by anyone, anywhere, in case you haven't noticed. It's so frustrating. I, If you know me at all, you know that I am not Donald Trump's biggest fan. And I think oftentimes that we on the right do our... The, the, and I'm speaking now specifically of Christian conservatives on the right. We do ourselves a bit of a disservice when we hold Donald Trump up as this beacon of the American ideal. I'm not saying that he hasn't been successful. He has been. He's a great businessman. But when it comes to morality, if, if our main thing is Jesus and being like Jesus, well... Yes, people can be forgiven, and yes, we can, we can move forward and make progress and have lives transformed, and that's what we want. But I think we need to be very careful. 
in some of the things that we say. And we need to be willing to recognize, I've talked about this in past episodes, so I'm not going to rehash it today, but we need to be willing to recognize that just because somebody plays for, quote, my team, doesn't mean that everything that they do is a good thing or that everything they do is something that I have to affirm or support. We have to reach a point where we're willing to say, hey, my guy messed up here. We shouldn't do this, regardless of who's the president. Otherwise, we just end up looking like hypocrites. Now, that said... It is absolutely outrageous how the mainstream media treats Trump's presidency and every single thing that comes out of the White House or out of the Republican Congress. This CBO report is just one of many issues like this. And the mayor of New York saying that children are going to die if we pass this budget. It's, it's just ridiculous. No, 23 million people are not going to lose their health care. In fact... Those few million people who will lose their health care will end up having better, cheaper plans if this bill goes through. The actual people that have insurance, not the millions of people that don't have insurance that can't lose it because they don't have it. And, oh, by the way, this plan saves us, or reduces rather, federal deficit by $119 billion. That's a lot of dollars. You want more spending for education or more spending for the military or more spending for whatever is your favorite thing that you think the government should be spending more money on? Well, it has to come from somewhere. Maybe it could come from, you know, here by giving people better, cheaper health care and reducing the deficit by $119 billion. That's just my crazy, my crazy thinking. I, I know, like, who, who comes up with these things? Who, who, who realizes that, oh, oh, hey, maybe we could save some money here so that we could spend it elsewhere. Or maybe we could just save it and not spend it elsewhere. That would be even better. <sighs> there are some things. <laughs> there are some things that just bring out the rant in me. Sorry, I can't, I can't help it. I mean, I can help it. But I'm on the radio, so it just, just kind of flows sometimes. But, you know. <sighs> we need to take a break. We're going to take a break. Be back in just a minute. You're listening to KVXO. 101.1 FM, Experience, Liberty Radio, in Las Vegas. Hey, if you're listening right now, I just want to say thank you. We would not have a radio station without you listening. I would not be on the air without you listening. I appreciate those of you that take the time to tune in, and I appreciate those of you that let me know that you are listening either in person, not that you're listening in person, but that you let me know in person. When you walk up to me and you're like, hey, I was listening to this the other day, that's always... uh that's always an encouragement. So, speaking of the president and how everything gets twisted out of proportion, there's so many stories, so many stories that I could hit right now of things that he has done that have been positive that no one is talking about. But since we were talking about the budget specifically earlier, I just wanted to mention these few things. All right, the dailywire.com, Ben Shapiro, great site if you're a conservative. Uh, and one of the few that I think is truly fair and balanced, even on the conservative side. But uh, one of his guys, Mark Muser, put together a piece on 11 unauthorized government spending programs that Trump is cutting from his 2018 budget. Get that now. 11 unauthorized government spending programs. Not only is the government spending money that we don't have, but it's spending money that wasn't authorized to be spent. Like, it's just... It, huh. 
Mike Mulvaney, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, announced that the Trump administration has discovered approximately $300 billion in federal spending in programs that have expired. This unauthorized spending has a real impact on balancing the budget. The Trump administration has not yet announced a full list of the programs that are unauthorized, but a quick review of the 2018 budget found 11 programs that Trump is terminating because Congress has not renewed the programs. All right, so here they are. Department of Commerce Economic Development Administration. The Economic Development Administration spent $251 million in 2017. The agency's authority is expired in 2008. So let's presume that they've spent... You know, we'll, we'll give them a break. We'll say $200 million per year in the last uh, nine years. What is that? Is that $18 billion? Am I doing that math right in my head? I don't even know. There's so many zeros, I can't even think about it. But how insane is that? We have a department that doesn't even have the authority to function that's spending over $200 million a year for nine years. What? Then there's the Department of Commerce, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Grants and Education. They're going away. They also spent over $200 million, and their authority is expiring. The Community Services Block Grant at the Department of Health and Human Services. The Community Services Block Grant funds approximately 1,000 nonprofit and local government organizations to a tune of $714 million. However, those funds are not tied to performance, and the money has been allocated based on 1981 budgeting. What? We haven't even looked at this in my entire lifetime, more than my lifetime. My lifetime plus three years. We haven't even looked at, we're just like, oh yeah, them, give them, give them $700 million dollars. It doesn't matter if they're doing a good job. Just give them money. Just, just give them the money. It's ridiculous. <sighs> Choice neighborhoods for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The 2018 budget proposes to eliminate 125 million, the $125 million budget of choice neighborhoods and allow state and local governments instead to provide incentives to private interests to improve neighborhoods. So basically, we're saying, you know, instead of the government making your neighborhood better with $125 million, let's let your neighbors help you make your neighborhood better. I actually don't have time to hit all 11 of these, so I'm just going to skip through here, find some more. Uh... The uh, Self-Help and Assisted Home Ownership Opportunity Program account at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. In addition to offering duplicate services, this program has been expired since 2001. For 16 years, this program has been giving money to, non- giving money to nonprofit organizations to assist with community development activities. This program will waste $56 million in 2017. And we could argue whether or not it's a waste. I'm, reading, I'm quoting the article. Uh, In the Department of Justice, we're getting rid of the State Criminal Alien Assistance Program. This duplicative and unauthorized program reimburses states and local governments for the cost of incarcerating illegal criminal aliens. This program is poorly administered in that the local governments applying for the funds did not actually have to use the funds for detaining illegal criminal aliens. And a large portion of the funds administered go to New York and California. But there's no accountability. We don't know if that's what they're doing, and we have other programs that are used to reimburse those who are actually using those funds in that way. And then the list goes on, but I've, I don't have time to continue it. But that's $300 billion 
that we are spending on programs that Congress hasn't authorized, in some cases, for my entire lifetime. But we're just throwing this money out year after year after year without looking at it. And this is something that I think that Trump can do a phenomenal job with, is getting our fiscal house back in order. And I hope that he does. I, I hope that he is successful. I, Except when it came to a variety of moral issues and things that I, I thought were wrong, I hope that President Obama was successful. Not, not Again, not in doing things that I would think were morally incorrect or that I, I believe were wrong. But the success of a president is the success of a country, right? I wanted gas prices to go down under Obama, regardless of how that needed to be done. You know, if ethanol was actually going to work, then more power to him. I hope it works. We can discuss that another time. But things like that. You should want the president to succeed because you want the country to succeed. And often the two are connected. Just, you know, a little bit. But we will have more on Thursday. I'm excited about Thursday's show. We're going to have Heather Hopped here. Heather's going to talk with us about uh, a new book that she wrote. It's about knights in shining armor. Even if you're a guy, you're going to like it. And we're going to talk about one Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) And why a universal living wage is not something that is going to work in this country. Because, oh, guess what? It's never worked anywhere else. For those of you with youngsters, it is almost time to submit your audition video for your chance to get in the show. Adventures in Odyssey is offering the opportunity for youngsters age 6 to 13, I believe it is, uh, to audition for a chance to participate in an Adventures in Odyssey live episode recording on the Focus on the Family 40th Anniversary Cruise. So, if your kid wins, you, your child, and two of your most favorite relatives or friends, preferably me, will get an all-expense-paid cruise with Focus on the Family this November. You can get all the information you need about that, including the script and how to submit your audition video at witsend.org. And that's all the time we have left for today. Be sure to join us for church tomorrow night at 7 p.m., Liberty Baptist. We're located at 6501 Westlake Mead Boulevard. If you can't be here, you can stream us online at experienceliberty.com. Hope you have a great day, and we'll see you back here tomorrow for some drive time with Friddle. If you have any favorites you'd like us to play, any favorite songs that you'd like us to play, I I can't play. um, There are certain things I can't play, all right? (laughs) Use your discretion. And if you send me a song which... I like. That's pretty much the bottom line. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. But right now we are going to play a song that I like. And if you have suggestions of songs you'd like to hear on the radio, you can always send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. You can find me there at The Friddle.